From VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, this is Circle of Willis. For this episode, I talk with Brian Nosick about his efforts to increase the public's trust in scientific findings through openness, repeatability, and taking a critical look at how scientists are rewarded for their work. Hey everyone, welcome to my podcast, Circle of Willis. For this episode, I'm sharing a conversation I had a while ago with Brian Nosick, professor of psychology here with me at the University of Virginia, as well as co-founder and director of the Center for Open Science, also here in fraught little Charlottesville. Brian earned his PhD at Yale University way back, way back in 2002, only about a year or so before I first met him here when I was just a jittery job candidate. Now, Brian has been in the public eye quite a lot in the past, I don't know, for many years now, not only due to his work with the Implicit Association Test, otherwise known as the IAT, but also and perhaps mainly for his more recent path-breaking efforts to increase the transparency and reproducibility of the work scientists do. I think you'll find that in our conversation, Brian is relentlessly thoughtful about everything that comes up. And I want to say here, publicly, that I think he's absolutely right, at the very least, about the toxicity of the current system of incentives and rewards faced by academic scientists. Occasionally, you'll hear that science is broken. It's a great sort of clickbaity phrase that thrives in our current social media ecosystem, but it's completely wrong, backward even, because science is not and has never been broken. Even now, science is our most precious, life-affirming, life-saving human activity. Literally nothing humans have invented has done more than science to improve our welfare, to increase our sensitivity to the natural world or to reveal the forces and mechanisms that form and constrain our miraculous universe. But the institutional structures within which science is done, they're in bad shape. At the foundation of all this, public funding for science is dismal. And that problem is yoked to the steadily declining public commitment to higher education in general. Our institutions have come to rely on bloated federal grants just to keep the lights on. And the responsibility for securing those federal dollars has fallen heavily on the shoulders of scientists who ought to be focused on making discoveries and solving the world's problems. And because that's a heavy burden, institutional structures have formed to incentivize, some might say coerce, scientists into striving for those federal dollars. Want to get tenure? Better bring in some big federal grants. Want 12 months of continuous salary? Better bring in some big federal grants. You get the idea. But there are other problems, too. Want to get a good raise? Well, you'd better publish a lot. Note that I didn't say you'd better publish excellent work. No one would say that excellent work isn't valued. It is. But what you really want is numbers. Because numbers are easier to evaluate. And, you know, we love indices we can point to that can help us evaluate each other as algorithmically as possible. So each individual scientist has, for example, an H-index associated with their name. If you don't know already what that is, just, I'm, I don't, I don't want to explain it right now. Just Google it, H-index. Journals come with impact factors, and all these indices are relatively easy to game. So professional advancement and stability orients itself toward gaming the indices at least as much as doing high-quality work. And in the meantime, a profession, a passion, you might say, and even an art, really, can gradually transform into a cynical race for money and prestige. And though a scientist may well grow skilled at reeling in the money during their career, whatever level of prestige they attain will ultimately fail them. So, you know, so much for that. 
As John Cassiopo argued in a previous episode of this very podcast, you and your specific work are not likely to be remembered for long, if at all. Prestige and recognition are understandable, but ultimately pretty foolish goals. Far better, Cassiopo argued, to focus your attention on the process, on the doing of your work. And your best shot at enjoying that work, perhaps even enjoying your life, is to make sure that the work you do is aligned with your values. Brian Nosek and I are in full agreement on at least one point. The system within which science is done, particularly within which American science is done, discourages that process-oriented focus and, by extension, discourages us from aligning our scientific process with our values. Why? Because our institutions have to keep the lights on. So yeah, science isn't broken at all. How could it be? Science is a system, a philosophy, perhaps even a moral commitment to transparency and openness, to verifiability, to repeatability, to discovery, and, I would argue, to humility. Science is far more than a collection of methods and techniques. And, by the way, there is nothing about science that requires coverage by the New York Times to be valid. What's broken is the system within which science manifests as a profession. And that gets to why I admire Brian Nosek so much. He isn't just complaining about things, you know, the way that I do. He's working hard to develop an alternative system, a system based on the scientific process instead of rewarding outcomes, and by extension, a scientific process based on deeply held scientific values. You and I may not agree with all the details of Brian's approach, but, you know, it's easy to criticize, right? Anyway, enough of this. Here's Brian Nosek and me having a conversation in one of the conference rooms at the Center for Open Science. This place is fancy, man. It's fancy. Yeah, it's really come together Yeah. well. It's a good setting for... How long have you been doing this now? 2013 in wow. March, we got our funding. And so did you rent this place right away? We moved into the building in June. Uh-huh. And then over here in August, I think it was, maybe September. Nice. Might have been later than that. Yeah, it starts but, to blur, yeah, doesn't it? Right? It's it was, like having kids. It was in 2013 still, but it yeah. took a while to yeah. actually get in the space. <laughs> and of course, we had half the space. And then now a year and a half ago, we you doubled, got two kitchens. doubled the space. I was now shown there's two kitchens. There's, two kitchens. Yeah. there's the Keurig and then there's the, the regular right. coffee machine. <laughs> right. This is the global south. Uh, that's, <laughs> get current. That's what I hear. I don't know. <laughs> What's, what is the COS? I know it's called the Center for Open Science, but how would you, you know, how would you explain it to my mom if you could? And, and by the way, backstory, yeah. she doesn't have an advanced degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My mom, or even, a, or even a college yeah. degree. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't explain it to her. Uh, <laughs> the, it is an organization trying to improve science. And it is a, a mission-driven organization that thinks about how is it that we can make science be more like we imagine science to be. Right. So that, Which is what? what? What do we imagine science to be? Well, what we learn as a kid, that scientists are curious. They try to figure stuff out. They do little experiments of some kind on whatever yeah. they're studying. Yeah. And then they share what, they, what they'd found with other people. Yeah. And then other people say, oh, that's kind of interesting. What about this? Or what about that? And then they share what they figured out. And they tinker. And yeah, it's a lot of tinkering, discovery, a lot of false starts, a lot of broken beakers and explosions <laughs> and right of, of getting it wrong lots of times. Lots of times. And that's then, the rule in, in and a then, way. Yeah. And then at some point sort of saying, oh, I, I think maybe this. And then See, other people say, oh, well, I, maybe, I don't know, but you know. Obviously, we're both scientists, so this is this is sort of the, the sandbox that that we've learned to play in, right? And it's, yeah. but it, but there is this other view of what science is, which is that you know some really amazingly smart people. <laughs> I don't know what that yeah. makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> You're right thinking away. of all your amazingly smart people that you 
<laughs> self-described. Right, right, yeah. Really smart people go into a, a place that's you know got gothic spires, and we discover the truth, and then we come out with our you know very fancy looking beanies and robes on, and and we pronounce what the truth is. Yeah. And uh, and there they can then take that truth and stop eating eggs to lower their cholesterol or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I think that's really what people think this is about. Yeah, in some ways. But I also think there is that enjoyment of like the, the fifth grade science fair, right? Of yeah. an appreciation that, yeah, yeah, there is that stereotype of the people at a distance. Yeah. That are elevated somehow or separate somehow. But also the sort of boots on the ground, down and dirty of just stumbling through trying to figure out hard problems. And I think both of those are true at the same time of the imagery of, of scientists or how science works. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the goal that we have is the, the core of that, whether it's the elevated kind or the, uh, the sort of ordinary kind of science, the core of that is it's a conversation. It's a search trying to figure stuff out and people sharing what they, what they learn with others. And, People challenging that, being skeptical, right? Everyone understands that science is about skepticism. And yeah. Sort of saying, I don't know, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that. And that's what COS exists to try to help facilitate is right. the actual conversation, right? And what does it mean, conversation? You know, how do you translate that into words that we use a lot? Well, it's openness. It's a transparent discussion right. of what are we trying to figure out? How are we trying to figure it out? What did we find? What do you think? Yeah. That's it. I see. So, that's, so the center, it. it sounds like, has, a, has a, a pretty broad overall mission. Yeah. But within the center, you have the, the sort of open science framework. Yeah. Right? So, so how do you distinguish that from, from the COS broadly? Yeah. So the mission is that global concept, right? That yeah. abstract concept of just open sharing of information, facilitating the dialogue of what science is yeah. supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. The how we get there is the the strategy of the of the center, and that is thinking about well, what are the realities facing how we get science to be that way. Yeah, right. And part of that is assessing what's the current culture. The culture of science has particular things that happen that aren't quite aligned with that that, that nice ideal, ideal of that how ideal. science is like supposed what? to work. So what are what are some of the problems with the current? Right. Culture? So what are, what are some of the problems? Well, what is it that I do on a day to day basis as a scientist? Yeah, I, I am curious. I am trying to figure things out. I am talking to people. But it all gets grounded in this very specific system of incentives and rewards. What what makes it so I can continue to be a scientist? Right. That the students How can in my lab my work? can become scientists in a way that is a profession rather than just an activity. Right. And it's that profession part of being a scientist where we get this gap between what we idealize as science and what we actually do as science. Right. The profession part requires me to write down things that I figure out and have it go through a pipeline of people saying whether it's good enough for other people to read. And it's only when it gets through that pipeline that I get the rewards that actually mean something for me in the career, right? Well, what is that pipeline? And, and like publication. Right, publication. So so the the end of the pipeline being really other people reading it. Yeah, and of course that is still aligned with the interests of science, right? Yeah. Is that other people will respond and things that are impactful and important and good ideas or bad ideas that are at least worth responding to will have a conversation. Yeah. But it gets channeled through a very specific process, which is I need to write papers and get those papers published uh, in order for me to get rewards. And right. the goal could be you need them to get published in order for other people to read it. <laughs> that's great. That's right. still part of what science is supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. But that's not really that's what not the reward really what is. is as a profession. Right. Right. For the profession, my reward is just getting it published. And, and it's then I'm more done. and then it's more of a question of how many how many and, and not, not, are they in the right place? Oh, right? geez. Is it what is the right place? The right like place. the right journals? Is the it right in science? Is it in nature? Right. The is one word in... journals are the place to be, oh, right? Yeah. And, and some of that is inevitable, right? You have to have – there's lots of people working on things. There aren't an infinite number of jobs to be had. And so you need some system 
of yeah. deciding who is it who that gets, gets the jobs, yeah. who gets advanced in their careers. Right. And so evaluation is part of the system, inevitably. Yeah. We're not going to get away from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But how is it that we have gotten to a system where the rewards are no longer, am I advancing the conversation in science? And really now are focused on, am I getting publications in the right places? Am I getting grants in order from to the support right, yeah. from the right sources with the yeah. right amounts of money, with yeah. the right things to support my institution? And the, the real challenge there is that these rewards of publication and grants are very concrete, very immediate. Yeah. I know if I've achieved those. And yeah. my institution knows if I've achieved those. And other people in my field know if I've achieved those. That concreteness yeah. makes them That's nice. focal. Yeah, right? yeah, it yeah. makes it hard to ignore counting publications, counting where they are, counting dollars, counting how much in order to assess my worth as a scientist. Right, right. Right? Where those those other things, advancing the conversation, making people think different things, right? You know, pushing out people's boundaries, challenging conventional ideas. Those are abstract. Yeah. Right? It's not so easy to decide, have you done that? Right. Right? And so as a consequence, <laughs> need, it's hard to yeah. use that as a mechanism yeah. of reward. And, and so maybe the consequence of the, the way this all is laid out for professional advancement is that I start honing my skill in, yeah. in the direction of getting sufficient numbers of publications and, and acquiring sufficient grant money. Right. And that becomes the end. Yeah. Or at least one of the ends. Right. And it's very hard to avoid, right? So it has yeah. a, a couple of selection pressures. One is it selects for people that are good at writing at, papers. Yeah, getting papers Getting out. grants, right? right? So it starts to change who it is that gets advanced right. because of who has those skills that aren't necessarily the same as advancing yeah. the conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. skills. Yeah. And then the other is it reinforces us to f actually focus on that as the goal, right? So, so many times, I'm sure you confront this as well, is that we get into our lab meeting discussions where we start totally excited just about the idea, yep. right? Debate, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be so interesting or whatever? Yeah, oh, yeah. look at that crazy piece of evidence. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, da, da, da. We have the best meeting. And in the last 15 minutes, we say, okay, so how are we going to write this up? Where are we going to send it? I'm sure you've you've had the experience working with graduate students where you 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 know the the, the arc of the graduate student experience is yeah. you know sort of bright shiny curiosity and interest that steadily erodes as they go through years of looking at their CV and wondering if the count is sufficiently high yeah. and uh, and that sort of thing you, you right. know and and it is not it's certainly not perfectly correlated it might be slightly correlated with the level of creativity yeah. that they bring to a, a specific problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Because what scientist gets into the field because they said, you know what? I like writing papers and grants. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's not a yeah. thing. No, that, that right? stuff just makes me cry. <laughs> no, yeah. And of course we do those things, but no one gets into it to do those things. No. No. And so that's the real challenge is that because the system of rewards is focused on those things, yeah. that we start to sort of drift away from why we are scientists in the first place. Okay, but here's the, here's the critical question then for me is, has that really done damage to yeah. the conversation? Right. I mean, sure, you know, it's right. depressing. It's yes. kind of a drag, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, okay. Everybody's miserable, We've got but at least we're making yeah, progress. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and there's there's a there's a great qu quote yeah. uh, from I can't remember which which essay by Peter Medawar uh, saying something like you know, you know all of these terrible things about science and scientists are 100 percent true, yeah. and somehow that still hasn't kept science from becoming the most successful human endeavor in yeah. history. Right. So wh where where do we stand now? Do yeah, you think? and I. I think I totally agree with the comment, right? It is the most successful endeavor in human history to figure out how things work yeah. to advance. Right? Virtually all of Medicine, our technological rockets, progress you know, can be attributed right. to science. So for me, it's not a question of is is it broken? You know, is it's not working? It's more of can we do this better? Uh -huh. uh, and to me, the the answer is an obvious yes, right? I think we are uh, much less efficient in terms of the pace of discovery and the enjoyment, fr frankly, of discovery, then we could, we could improve that dramatically. And, and the core reasons, I think, are that because that system of reward is focused on publishing as frequently as possible in the most prestigious places possible, 
it pulls on strands of basic fallibilities in human reasoning, a, yeah. a scientist doing science that lead us away from the most efficient means of discovery. If there are certain things that are more publishable than other things, <clears throat> right? That's the reward I need. Yeah. There's got to be some basis of reward. I got to count something. If there are certain things that are more likely to be rewarded, then I'm going to make use of these enormous frontal lobes <laughs> in order to make sure I get as many of those things as possible. Yeah. Right. And so I need positive results more than negative results. I need novel results more than repetition. You need, you need to show up in the New York need, Times. You need to, yeah, to have to, a lot of productivity right. that and you can it, point to. And it's got to be exciting and sexy and interesting. And yeah. of course, who doesn't want those things? Of course, I yeah. want those things. But if those are the only things I'm rewarded for, right? If I can't publish my negative results, if I can't publish a replication or a way to try to verify or increase the precision of existing estimates, if I can't publish things that don't have a neat and tidy story where it all wraps up together, then I am faced with a dilemma in the yeah. lab. Competing right? Competing interests. Demands, yeah. Right. The, what's happening in the lab when I'm studying those hard problems that keep me up at night, that get me all excited, that drive us to get into science in the first place. Yeah. When I'm actually studying those, there's all kinds of false starts. Yes. There's all kinds of mess. It's all yeah. kinds of things that don't yeah, make yeah. sense. Right? That's, that's the joy of doing the science in the first place is that slow pace toward actual yeah, discovery. Yeah, sure, sure. But the incentives are all about, nope, got to be clean, tidy, and you got to do more of it. Yeah. And so now I have this situation of what's really happening in the lab is kind of messy. All the incentives are for beauty. And so where, what do I do? There's a lot of flexibility in how science gets done. I have many studies that I do and only a subset get written up. I have many ways to analyze my data and only a subset might get into the paper. All of that flexibility then creates opportunity for me to leverage uh, making beauty out of mush. <laughs> and I don't need to, you know, and that can be th seen as very cynical, like, oh gosh, well, Brian's just a dishonest guy because he's going to make things look beautiful that aren't. The, the challenge is if that, if it was, if we were really good, rational thinkers, then I would know when I'm doing that. Right, I would see that. Wait a second, I am going down this path because it looks better. It's a little bit and like I'm not doing these. It's a little bit paths. like playing twenty questions with your data. You're saying sort yeah. of like you know, sooner or later you arrive at a at an answer that looks publishable, that looks really good. But yeah. it also along the way have instead of cynically just saying I need a beautiful result to be published, you persuaded yourself. I persuaded myself. Yeah, right. I'm I'm interacting with my data in an honest way. Yeah. That is simultaneously a biased way. Right? <laughs> right. So I am genuinely trying to figure stuff out. But because there's certain things I need, I've got motivated reasoning. I will find yeah. that nicer looking result to be more compelling. Yeah. Right. And that study where we did as a follow up to just make sure that we had that phenomenon and it turned out to be a null. I look at it and say, oh, my gosh. Look, of this course, is we did it wrong that design. time. Yeah. 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 Get rid right. of that one. How right. do we even think of doing that study? That's crazy. Yeah. Right? It's so easy. I mean, and these are things that that we know from our psychology that we do so easily and so pervasively. Yeah. Right? Confirmation bias. Yes. We look, we're just, it's natural in that general sense for us to look for information consistent with our existing beliefs rather right. than inconsistent. Right, right. And we'll selectively appreciate the world aligned with that. Hindsight bias. Yeah. But we will see different outcomes and then we'll say, oh, of course we would have thought that this would only work with men and not with women. Yeah, that's that's what my hypothesis would have been. Yeah. And I would have e I even remember it as that was my hypothesis even though I hadn't even thought about gender in initially. Right? So we just do these things so fluidly that we don't even see that we're doing them. Right. And that's a real challenge for for some human and, doing science. And just bring us full circle a little bit. Part of the problem with the incentive structure you're arguing is that it doesn't encourage us to to Expose worry that. about that. Exactly, it encourages us to to take advantage of it rather right. than rather than be afraid of it. Right, and that's that's really the core of we're going back to this idea of how we idealize science to be is this open conversation of this is what I did and this is what I found. Yeah, right. We are the process is not transparent. <clears throat> what you get when you read one of my papers is my summary. Of what yeah. I think I did. After it's gone uh, through a potentially whatever. very complex pro process. Yeah, 
Right. And, and it is my most genuine attempt at being accurate. This is Challenges. how we are. This is, yeah, this we, is what it is. We. The yeah. big we. Yeah. Uh, and so the, <laughs> if there's fingers to point, then we have to point them everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there are people that deliberately take advantage of something. Right, right. And I, I, I sort I, of put that I, aside. That's a sort of a special right? category, I think. It yeah. is. And, you know, it, it's nice to sort of say, oh, that's that's qualitatively distinct. And and in some cases, it certainly is. But And there is a continuum, right? People yeah. are more or less willing to sort of pay attention to the fact that they might be biased. No, nevertheless, I don't care about that, right? Yeah. In, in the specific sense of there will be cheaters in any yeah. system. Always. Always. Yeah. And we have to worry about that as a different phenomenon yeah. than the ordinariness of human reasoning yeah, trying yeah, yeah. to do science. So I'm worried about myself in the sense of I want to do the best science I can. Uh, I want the results to be as credible as I can. Yeah. And I want to provide solutions that work for me and ideally will work for other people too. Because in some ways they're like me, just yeah. trying to figure it all out. We're just trying to figure it all out. We're we're all you know, we're all best intentioned people trying to do the best work that we can, yeah. but yoked to these incentives that we can't do a heck of a lot about at this point. Yeah, that's right. And until you can actually see my process, right, of how it is I get to those those conclusions at the end then there isn't really opportunity to do what science is supposedly able to do, self-correct. Yeah. That, that's really where this, the core challenge is, is that because all you see in the, in the current process, all you see is my summary report of what I did, then you are reliant, in terms of an independent observer, you are reliant on what I am able to and did report yeah. to try to get insight yeah, onto yeah. where it might be flawed uh, <laughs> and where it might be good. So right? this is the COS trying to open up? No, th okay, this gets back to that question I asked yes. that, that I sort of def deflected us from. The o open science framework as as sort of un underneath the, the overall yeah. umbrella of the COS mission, the open science framework is about sharing the process. That's right. Yeah. Not just the summary. Exactly. How do we open up the entire research life cycle? But – that scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. How so? Because because my process is a complete mess. <laughs> well, that's I'm for a, sure. I'm a, I'm a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I don't yeah. want to see anybody see my process. It's like right. it's like walking around. That's like coming to work naked. Yeah. You know, does yeah. the, the, what it what I mean? Yeah. Well, have really? you ever been to a nudist camp? It actually is quite free. <laughs> Not that I've ever been. <laughs> But you it's read about it in the magazine. Yeah, I read about it a lot. Yeah. Oh wait, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, Seriously so, though, I mean, yeah. do, you know, do, do, this this seems to be this is a this is a totally different yeah. view. I mean, and I guess yeah. that that also gets us back to the the incentive structure. I mean, you know, after gosh, I mean, in one way or another, I started doing research as an undergrad, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're we're going on twenty five years. Yeah, I've been thinking in terms of you know, presenting the narrative, you know, exactly. get, getting people, you know, I, you know, thinking about process, what in the hell are you talking about? My right. process is a, it's like a, it's like a bunch of spaghetti noodles all over the table. Right. Right. Yeah. And it is, uh, it is difficult to imagine exposing the entire thing. And so there, there are two answers, I guess, to that. One is incrementalism. What can, what else can you expose confidently? Do that. Right. Yeah. And so the, the open science framework as infrastructure, as software, gives researchers full flexibility. You can leave whatever private you want. You can expose whatever you want. And we make it easy to make it more accessible, right? So that's the first thing is meet researchers where they are. They want to so be anybody more, can anybody can sign up for this. Anybody can service. sign. It's a free service. Uh, it's for you know. It's basically for archiving for your own use, right? We should stop losing our own data, our own materials for our own labs' use. Yeah, that's it's ridiculous that when a machine blows up in our own lab or a grad student leaves, uh, that we lose information. Yeah, for our own use. That's that's crazy. Yeah, so let's that solve is crazy. that problem. Yeah, allow people to use the system entirely <clears throat> privately and make it really easy to open. So that's one answer to that, which is. Okay, you're not ready to go totally open? Fine. Uh, don't go totally open. But you can still get the benefits of preservation, of making it possible to make parts of it more accessible, and of having more confidence internally of your own process, right. even if you're not willing to expose it. Externally. Right, right, right. That's one part. The other part is that it does sort of prompt a mind shift uh, in if I'm 
if I am so alarmed to let people see behind the curtain of my paper, what is that? Does that mean something about the confidence that I have in what's actually goes into that paper? Yeah. Right? And, you know, it is partly, it's like, well, I just didn't document it, right? So yeah. part of your answer, I assume, would be like mine, yeah. which is, yeah, it's a mess, but it's not that it's an inaccurate mess. It's just, I didn't, it's just, it's just, I, I'm a bad bookkeeper. It. Right, right. Yeah, I'm a terrible and, bookkeeper. And the actually, output's yeah. totally right. I'm sure it's totally yeah. right. <laughs> but of course, you know, that there is overconfidence in that, right? Sometimes yeah. I go back to those old files that I had and old things trying, you know, the reviews come back a year later or, you know, a project comes up and I say, oh, there's this old project we have. Let's go check it out. Right. And, and I discover all kinds of errors or I can't figure it out. Uh, and it's like, oh, geez. you know, I got to tell yeah. you one time, uh, we, uh, we reanalyze, we, this is, this is a ongoing project. Yeah. There's something just looked too good to be true in a, in a, in a data set. So I asked another person in the lab to reanalyze it yeah. just however they would like to do it. And got a totally different answer. Oh, gosh. It's not even doing a different study. It's yeah. the same exact yeah. data set. Yeah. And and I just I, I just so wandered easy. around like I'd been hit in the head for days. Right. Right. And so this is the real challenge, I think, is that because we don't ever anticipate that the process will be public, we don't care for the process in the way that we might otherwise. Yeah. So if we know in advance, right, that I'm I and this my lab is you know moving step by step this direction is. We are going to make as much of our process accessible as possible. Knowing that we're going to do that changes how we do our process, right? So it isn't yeah. the spaghetti news. We actually think about it in the same way that we go about a paper, which right. is, yes, it's going to take a while to get it to all be aligned and look right, but that's part of doing the science. So you, so you put a little more effort into sort of formalizing the process is kind of yeah so we have a, you know the way that you do the narrative at the end exactly right so it's not just the narrative at the end now it's the code book for the data yeah now it's the code that's applied to the data right now it's the you know the the materials that we used the hypotheses the that hypotheses we that we say yeah we all this you know we write it down in advance <clears throat> and there is still the spaghetti mess but it is it leads to an actual set of these are the uh, th this is the idea at the beginning. These are the materials that we have. These are the data we have, so that all of that is clean and beautiful. Yeah. And I can go back to it. I mean, it's amazing now to go back to a study that we've done in the last two years compared to a study we did six years ago, and actually be able to understand it. Actually, be able to take <laughs> and say, well, and in theory, anybody could, right? And, if, and you anybody could, could. You could, you could yeah. reconstruct, right? You could, what you, you did. can say, there's a, a few of our recent papers where you can go to the OSF, uh, find the code, click run, and regenerate all of our findings from the paper, just right Shit. instantly, right? That's amazing, right? That someone else can confirm that we got what we say we got. It sounds better than a method section. Yeah. Right. So this is all. This is all part of the. This was a conversation that happened a few years ago. Is, yeah. is should the method section be sufficient? My own feeling is that maybe it should, but it's never going to be. No, exactly. And and it's uh, if we focus on the paper, we're going to end up missing the boat. A entirely. whole bunch of stuff. Right. The the sum the method section is a summary. It's a summary in order to facilitate the purpose of a paper. Right. right. Which is to give a reader uh, an understanding, a basic understanding of what, what happened. happened. Yeah. But the reader that actually needs to know precisely what happened cannot have to depend on the paper. Yeah. Right? They have to be able to get into the materials, a, a video of the experimental mm -hmm. setup, uh, yeah. you know, whatever it is. There's lots of other stuff that when I actually want to take what you did and apply it in some way in our lab, we need to be able to have a much deeper engagement uh, with that. And process. you know, it seems like if you go back in the history of science, this is there's a way in which this was always the case. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not you're you're you seem to be really formalizing, or, or maybe that's the wrong word. You're providing a technology for accelerating or 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 making this process easier. But when I think about the the sort of major scientists in the major fields yeah. of science, I mean, visiting laboratories, conferences. You know, conversations like this yeah. over drinks at the bar, you know, where people start working out some of these details and right. start learning about each other's process. And this sort of, I think, has always been right. part of the How game. How could it have been otherwise? How could it have been otherwise? It couldn't right. possibly have been otherwise. And, We're not mind readers. Yeah. And so we've lost this perspective uh, partly as a function of 
uh, being able to get just enough information at a distance. Right? Yeah. The the papers itself, the fact that they're distributed easily, uh, makes it feel like we understand what each other is doing. Uh, the internet dramatically accelerates all of that. Yeah. Right. And simultaneously, the fee- science has gotten so big. Right. So yeah. when there's only yeah. a few people. Uh, then you have relationships and you call up the person. You say, how did you do that? Oh my God, we tried this thing. It didn't make any sense. So those relationships facilitate that exchange of information yeah. in an easy way. Yeah. Now that there are hundreds, thousands of people that I would consider to be studying the same kinds of things that I study, I, I, I can't talk. You can't do them. that. No. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I am more reliant on the more indirect means of yeah. communication. Well, and in a similar way, um, you know, meet, when you do meet at the at the conference, not everybody has access to that conversation that right. you had, you know. Right. I mean, you yeah, could learn scope, really yes, interesting exactly. synergistic things right. happening and then that brings in diversity and access and all of these oh, other yeah, questions start right. becoming a, a, yeah. a problem. Yeah, so some people say, "Oh, we totally know how they did their study because we talked to them." Because we talked, we know them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're, we're buddies. We, yeah. we we you know, and then we went out and saw a band in Austin <laughs> right. afterwards. Right. And then there are the 150 other people who aren't <laughs> sort of standing in, around fogging the up group the glass saying, "What the heck?" <laughs> <laughs> how yeah. come how come you didn't tell me that you didn't replicate that study yeah. you know after 10 right. tries because right. I did too and now we both wasted our time right yeah and yeah. so that is a real critical point is the accessibility of that right and the degree to which it creates this elitism in science right yeah. we are so lucky to be at a place like University of Virginia where we have access to everybody yeah if I email yeah. people yeah yeah they usually respond uh, because we have a position a status, a credibility that's yep. instantly applied based yep. on yep. the the circumstances that we're in, uh, and that it's it's easy to not see that privilege uh, in the insight that we have in in our own domains, and to and to also not see the opportunity cost that comes along with it, yeah. because for science in general, yeah. because we're pretty smart, but we're not that smart. Yeah. There's all kinds of people out there in the world who don't have this access that could be really contributing in important ways to exactly. the, the problems we're wrestling right. with, and that currently don't have access to that. Right. Yeah. And so that really is the. Um, not, it's not subversive because it's it's stated uh, is that the, <laughs> uh, is that what the open science framework can do is really provide inclusivity at scale, right? Yeah. If you and I are getting insight on each other's work based on our ability to have conversation and our ability to share materials directly, email with each other, whatever, by putting that into an open repository, now we give an orders of magnitude, more people, the opportunity to get similar kinds of insight. Right. Now, of course, the personal contact may always have a benefit, right? There is uh, the, those networks, social networks really matter, uh, but we can do a lot to help the spread of that information uh, accelerate and be much broader so that uh, people that don't have the same access points can get started, right. can get into the system, can get enough insight because of that to greatly accelerate uh, their own capacity, but then the capacity of science more broadly. So this all sounds great, right? This sounds really great, but it also sounds, I mean, the thing about going to the conference is that it, it's kind of easy. Yeah. You know, you, you can, you, you sidle up to the bar and you have a beer and you and chit it's chat fun. and it's yeah. fun. Yeah. And uh, you know, Making the 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 process more transparent sounds hard. Is it hard? Uh, it is hard in the sense that we none of us have done it <laughs> before in a systematic way. Yeah, and yeah. so in the same way that it's hard to write a paper uh, or it's hard to do data analysis, of course it's you got to learn. Yeah. Right? All of these things have Shit. to be learned. I don't want to right? learn anything. I've learned <laughs> right. a whole bunch of stuff right. so far. And I don't uh, like but do you're always again. learning, right? This is the thing that we forget as scientists is that we study things that we don't, we, we are studying them to learn about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And 
the process part can feel boring, right? Yeah. How do we format our papers? I don't care how we form. Just tell me right. how to format the damn paper. Right. Uh, right. And once I've learned that, don't tell me again. I, I know APA style now. I am not learning any other style. <laughs> Forget it. I don't care. If Nor am I learning the updates. It, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm all APA fourth edition. That's that's where I end it. Uh, <laughs> right. Maybe we should have badges. What, what edition <laughs> right, are you? Right. Right. Uh, but those. Uh, but, you know, so that that's going to be a barrier, learning new stuff when you feel like you already know it uh, or have a system, a workflow is a barrier to change. Uh, but once it's learned, it's not more time. It's just this is how things are done. Uh, yeah. This is how we do it. This is how we document. And there is long term efficiency benefits for doing a good job of documenting your process, of organizing your process. Because of all of those revisits that we do. Yeah. Right? How many times has it happened in my lab? I don't know how many times it happened in yours. It's happened a lot in my lab where we are having a conversation and we say, this is just like this other thing that we did with Nicole five years ago. <clears throat> Man, let's, let's go back to those data and though that, that study design. Reanalyze it. Reanalyze it. Take it, use it as a pilot for this new thing. And we just can't. Right? Yeah. We've lost the thread of that information for our own use. And we've just got it's we've, we're stumbling over ourselves because of our lack of uh, good training in how to curate and manage and the expose process. our own process for our own use. And so that's where I think we can ultimately make a case that it's worth people's time to to learn that stuff because it's not just for the greater good so that someone else that they don't know can learn about this. It's so that themselves a year from now uh, can can get right back into it, yeah, uh, and keep moving. Yeah, you know, you do. I don't know if you've had this experience. I, I imagine you have, but but you, I I said certainly, you know, I've read various histories of science, uh, you know, yeah. ver, you know, scientists' work, and one thing that I've always really envied is the is the sort of progressive systematic working through a problem over over you know, where you just keep building like yeah. this 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 trajectory you know rather than sort of having this cool finding and this cool finding and that cool finding where it's sort of you know cumulative right uh uh work it seems so so important and enviable to me and yeah and that process would right it, it seems really really, really help that. that yeah and historically that incrementalism, which has been seen as a bad word uh, in science, but yeah. it really is that cumulative nature is building and, and on different findings that ha historically has been a single person or a single small group working on that. But now the problems that we have are so big that there are lots of people working on that, Yeah. right? Why, why are there these huge debates about CRISPR and who is the originator? Well, it's because right. lots of people uh, were, working were working on the on same it. problem, yeah, whereas right. there aren't those same debates uh, for a lot of historical problems because it was that person yeah. <laughs> uh, that was working on that working, problem. Yeah, with, with massive uh, funding or sort of, you know, and many years, and many years right? and lots of, lots of time to spend yeah. sort of sipping tea and contemplating the next move. Yeah. But yeah. now the the spread of that just amplifies the need for better communication, more transparency of the process of the materials and everything else, so that the the many minds working on the same problem have access to uh, the same knowledge base. Do you think it's going to slow things down? Uh, I guess it depends on what you mean. In the sense of it does take a little bit more time to write down rather than just say, oh, I'll remember uh, <laughs> and, and move on. Yeah. In the short term, that takes more time. Uh, in the long term, uh, we don't just remember and we forget and we lose things and everything else. So there's, I think the cumulative benefit is that things will move faster. But at the same time, it's not, I think, that we'll necessarily be faster in any one line of research. Uh, it may it may be slower. It just may yield more. It may it may, it may give us more. the sort of subjective experience of 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 being slower. Yeah, and simultaneously we mm -hmm. may get more 
we may make more progress in science. We yeah. discover more things more quickly well, so by this, being more efficient yeah, with the process. So this gets us to to the crisis. Yeah. Right. If if I can use that, I mean, I it, I don't know if that's even the right way to put it anymore. But but Call there, it the but reproducibility there, movement. The reproduce. Right? Oh God, I was going to ask you if yeah. the if there is a movement one and and what yeah. the name of the movement is because it's sort of like I don't want to say the wrong thing and offend people. But I, but <laughs> right. I but at this point I just sort of have resigned myself to offending someone because <laughs> right. that that's the social media age. Right. But but let's call it the reproducibility movement. Yeah. Can we call it that? Sure. So it seems like, you know, we, we, we all have learned that there's these trade-offs. There's the type one error, type two error trade-off. There's the external validity, internal validity trade-off. And these are things that we all understand and we all sort of pretty much know. I mean, one thing with the current state of affairs where people are just like, bam, 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 getting a bunch of papers out as fast as they can is that the trade-off there is that we, we might make more discoveries at a, at a faster rate, but a lot more of them might be wrong. Yeah. And so the other way to look at this, you know, is if we focus more on the process, we might make discoveries at a at a slower rate, but we might be right more of the time. Do you think that that's a fair characterization? It's a po- it is fair in the sense that is at, at that sort of first level of analysis, that would seem to be the trade-offs. And you could make arguments that it isn't quite that way, but let's go with that yeah, as the trade-off. I mean, and, and I'm willing to hear um, that. I mean, I, I don't know whether the, that's right or not. The, so then the ultimate question is, what is optimal? Because the let's say that the proportion is different in the number of true discoveries. We'll use true loosely here. Yeah. And the total volume of discoveries, right? right? And so the there has to be at some point where ratio. there's an optimization curve mm-hmm. of what which way you should do it. There are some parts that suggest that it isn't just as simple as a trade-off uh, between the two. The best example probably is low-powered research. Right okay. now, it's to my benefit to generate as many, you know, I actually can generate more findings by using small samples. Right. Uh, and low, by low power, we mean the insufficient ability to detect a true effect. Right. If it's actually there. Yeah. Right? If it's actually there. And the, and so you'd say, well, low power is bad for identifying, you'll, you'll miss more things than you should have. Right. You'll get false negatives. Right. If I have low power, then I can't detect true effects that are there. Yeah. So low power is bad for negatives. But if I get a positive, then it's more likely to be true. Right. Right. And that intuition is not correct. Low power is bad for both false negatives and false positives in the conditions of what's the rate of actually true things that we're studying. Right. And so the difficulty of the, <laughs> the intuition there is that the base rate of how many true things are there to discover strongly influences the impact of power on our rate of discovering findings. And if we're studying things that are not likely to be true, I mean, because we have lots of ideas about what's possible in this hard domain and only and a few of we're going to be wrong most of the time. We're going to be wrong most of the time. If we accept that, then it's in our interest to do much more high-powered research to increase or decrease both our false negative and our false positive rate. So that is an argument for it isn't a strict trade-off. Doing fewer studies with higher power, well, of course, then we're going to discover fewer things. No, no, we're actually going to discover more things because we're going to have both the power to detect the true things and the power to say those other things aren't there uh, that yeah. we didn't think are there. Um, and so that's that's an argument that is more complicated than a simple uh, which which – which error rate are we more interested yeah, in? Yeah, and it reminds me that I've never yet heard a good persuasive argument for low power Yeah, in, in research. <laughs> right. I, that's right. never happened. Right. <laughs> there, is a, there isn't There's a good there, argument. There, yeah. it's, a, it's a waste of resources. Uh, and but but, there, but there, a, there may be a trade-off that has to do with focusing on the narrative versus the process. There may yet because you could still – because power can be a separate issue. Yeah. So the, the argument, there, there's a sort of a side argument that says, well, low po- everybody can agree, if it's true, that low power is bad. Nevertheless, there are occasions where low powered research is worth talking about, right? That's true. And that's an important po- qualification, yeah. which yeah. is, look, there are only 17 people with this particular disorder in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Yeah. We are going to talk about <laughs> what we found <laughs> well, with those seven That's absolutely people. right. But that raises the point that I think doesn't get sufficiently talked about sometimes, 
which is that statistical power isn't just about n the, yeah. the number of subjects you have yeah design yeah has a huge exact. impact can, on, on right. power so you can take those 17 i mean the development of exposure therapy yeah which is far and away the most effective clinical intervention ever devised by clinical science was built on n of one studies over and over and over again right because right. of the designs, because yeah. of the very careful way that they documented changes when right. when interventions were implemented, yeah. those are logical arguments. And power is an if in, 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 is, in is, is a logical right. argument. And and even in the scenarios, right? That we can imagine many cases where we have very little data, but it's such precious data yeah. that we want to talk about. It. That's right. So yeah. That's, right. Right. That's even, not right. saying setting that aside. So we, we will, you know, we will accept the point and or and embrace the point that. Whether, whether we take data seriously or not has lots of different influences, but simultaneously, the confidence that we have in data is limited by statistical power inevitably. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. we'll just make slower progress when it's harder to get the data that we need. Uh, that's just a reality. And so that's, that's a hard thing for a lot of the, in this reproducibility movement for a lot of people to face because of the high variation in how hard it is to get some kinds of data. Right. Yeah. It's really hard to get a lot of data from babies. Yeah. It's hard to get the babies into the experiment itself, and yeah. it's hard to keep them engaged enough to I get know. enough data from them. Yeah. Right? So I don't study babies. And so, yeah, and there that is, if if you are concerned about power, then studying babies is a bad idea because it is really, really hard. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this is this is a very difficult thing to confront. Right. There's an entire discipline focused on data collection with babies. And to say, well, we just really can't do that very efficiently uh, or effectively is like, what are you talking about? Are you saying we need to shut down this area of research? Yeah. Well, no, uh, but we do if because we think that's important, we want to understand babies' interior lives, we are going to have to accept, given the realities, of, the statistical realities of power, that our progress is going to be much slower than in other fields. And so the number, the pace of those amazing discoveries and confidence in those discoveries is necessarily more slow uh, in fields where it's hard to get sufficient data. Uh, and so the standards have to be different in order to evaluate uh, that compared to psychophysics. Do you think that that's a general principle or do you think then there again, it sort of depends on what we're studying. It sort of depends on what, because I think of Judy Deloach's yeah. work with toddlers, for example, and, and I, I did one of these with her and she was talking about how the scale error effect, right. you know, they published that with no statistics at all Yeah, because it was just, does it Here happen it or not? Yes. So that's exactly, that's a fantastic point. Uh, and that is because you can study things you're just limited to uh, what is possible, right? If the question is existence proof, yeah, one person's enough, yeah, yeah, and one instance of it on that one person is enough. If the question is for very large effects, great, yeah, small samples, no problem. <laughs> but the, you know, Yuri Simonson has a great paper on the this argument about telescopes, yeah, uh, right, yeah, it's great. you simply cannot study something if you don't have the precision to measure it. Yeah, you simply can't yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so, right. saying we're going to study these galaxies that are this you know light years away with this tiny little telescope, it's it's a non-starter. Yeah, and we don't. It's easy in the context of a physical telescope and seeing something to understand that. It's much harder to see that in the statistics of inference. Yeah, that we yeah, use. yeah, absolutely. But the same concept applies. Yeah. That's a real challenge. So is then part of what the Center for Open Science does, so it, it provides this, this opportunity to share our process, maybe some guidelines for how to do that. Is it also policing? Is it part, is it part of a, a sort of a, a methodological police force to sort of spot bad practices? No, in the sense that the... There isn't anybody with enforcement capacity uh, in science. <laughs> but right? do you think the, that would be helpful to have like a, a centralized, no, I, like a regulatory body? I'm or a, pretty libertarian about how science operates best. Uh, and that is that what we want, I think, in a scientific, uh, a productive scientific process is an open marketplace of ideas. Yeah. Uh, and that open marketplace of ideas, in order for it to work, and this is really where I think it's not working where it should, uh -huh. uh, is that we don't actually have insight into how those ideas, ha what the evidence is supporting those ideas. And that's right. the transparency part. Yeah. Right? So the main change that I would like to see is 
transparency of those ideas so that self-correction of how science is supposed to operate as a distributed system where there is no authority, there is no hierarchy, there's just ideas and there's evidence, uh, and those get debated and you know, challenged, and there's clusters of support form. This group thinks that that's true. That group thinks that's true. Let them fight it out, right? Does it actually yield the truth? Does that emerge from all of that system? Well, you know, that's, that's a hard problem uh, <laughs> to figure out. But I think it is the kind of system that we can get at sort of the ground level as researchers deal with it. The systems of how do we pull information out of that open free marketplace and, and insert it into policy uh, or into other human activities. Well, now that's something where you might have structures that aren't as uh, libertarian, where it is a matter of reputation. Right, because that's politics. Decision making. Right, there is, yeah. there is decision making yeah. to turn those idea, the ideas in that marketplace into actions. Right. And that has to have some kind of process of who is deciding, what are the, who are they deciding yeah. for, um, and so that that's that's a but that's a different kind of problem, yeah. Uh, than just the the activities of individual researchers trying to figure stuff out. So getting back to what your question was, no, I don't think there's p- police is not a role in that environment, uh, but critical evaluation is. It must be S- skepticism it's, is. It, there's no science without that. But but it isn't with differential status, right? The implication of police force is, is that there that are some people that are in the charge. Truth. And other, or you know how it's done. Right. And other and, people don't. And, and we are going to be Make in you charge do of you. Right? Yeah. And I don't think there's, there's, that's how it should work. Uh, how yeah. it should work, which is close to what it does now, which is you and I disagree and we argue about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I say you should have done it that way. And you say, screw you. I did yeah. it this way. And then, well. That's where it ends. It's really interesting <laughs> because I think about, you know, uh, you know, my, my, I, I did a um, sort of methodology minor in my PhD and we talked a lot about philosophy of science over the years. And there's this sort of what you're doing with this doesn't align perfectly or conflict with any of the major philosophical movements that I can think of. Yeah. And I mean, it, it seems like, you know, if we had Karl Popper and Paul Feyerabend here, Neither would be particularly offended by yeah. what you're talking about. I mean, yeah, Paul Feyerabend has what are you, epistemological anarchy, right? right. It just anything goes right. in order to get to the, the 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 truth. But I would guess that part of that would be openness about process. Yeah, yeah. I think real, and this is really uh, that, that's an important point because I think really what our exclusive aim is is on embodying the values of the enterprise. Yeah. Right. Not of what it is that how one gets to truth, right? The philosophies of science can all be layered on top of sort of the basic units of you need to communicate. You need to communicate. You have to share what you've share. done. You have to be open with your process. Yeah. Right? How else are we going to evaluate it? Right? And what would be the credible philosophical argument of, no, nobody share anything and we'll <laughs> argue about who's right. Right. They're just, I mean, it's right. sort of like a, well, well that's religion, okay. right? I mean, I, not to offend, not to offend oh, my religious boy, friends. Yeah, yeah. There I did it. <laughs> Cats but, out of the bag. But that, but that's really where it is, right? Yeah. Is that you have to, is as a precept for actually having intellectual discussion to try to figure something out. These are the basics. Yeah. And that's all that we're trying to do is not push beyond that of just getting the marketplace, the information it needs for those debates to happen. I love it. Brian, this was really great conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really that was Thanks, really fun. Yeah. All right. Great to chat. Okay, folks, that's it. Thanks to Brian Nosick for sharing his time with me and for his candor, good humor, and great attitude. Thanks to Brian also for the work he's done and continues to do to bring real practical resources to bear via the Center for Open Science to encourage and empower scientists to focus on their values as they do the difficult and deeply rewarding work that they do. Thanks again, Brian. I admire you a lot. Folks, the music for this episode of Circle of Willis was written and performed by Tom Stoffer of Tucson, Arizona. For information about how to purchase Tom's music, as well as the music of his band, The New Drakes, 
check the about page at circleofwillispodcast.com. Also, check out our new Instagram account. That's right. There is an account on Instagram now called Circle of Willis Podcast. And there you'll find a series of essays and drawings and mini blogs about topics related to the program, all of which are only available on Instagram. Why? Because I want to. That's why I like it. And that's all. Circle of Willis is produced by Siva Vijanathan and brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship here at the University of Virginia. And Circle of Willis is a member of the Teej FM Podcast Network. You can find out more about that at teej.fm. Special thanks to VQR editor Paul Reyes, WTJU-FM general manager Nathan Moore, as well as NPR reporter and co-founder of the very popular podcast Invisibilia, Lulu Miller. If you like this podcast, how about giving us a little review at iTunes and letting us know how we're doing? It's super easy and we like it. Or go the more direct route by simply sending us an email at circleofwillispod at gmail.com. That is circleofwillispod at gmail.com. You can also contact us by visiting circleofwillispodcast.com and clicking on the contact tab. Okay? Okay. Folks, here's the deal. I'm taking a vacation. Yes, that is what I'm going to do. That means this will be our last episode until August when Circle of Willis will return with a vengeance. <laughs> I don't really know what I mean by that. But when we do return, we'll be hearing from Wendy Hassenkamp, science director of the Mind and Life Institute, to hear about what she's been doing to align the science of contemplative practice with all those processes and values that Brian Nosick and I talked about only moments ago. We'll also be hearing from John and Julie Gottman about the science of marriage in our very first episode of Circle of Willis recorded before a live audience. And there's so much more coming up, too. Until then, I hope you are planning on having as nice a time this summer as I am. See you in August. Bye-bye. <laughs>